Is there a possibility that the 10th largest nuclear power plant in the world, near Enerhodar, and the remnants of the Chernobyl power plant could once again spew deadly radiation on account of the war with Ukraine? How did being within one mile of the three-mile island partial meltdown when it happened turn a girl into a committed activist and radio broadcaster against all things nuclear? How does the Russian military operations in Ukraine advance the prospects of a nuclear holocaust being triggered either deliberately or accidentally? What has been the consequences of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster now exactly 11 years after it happened? On this week's Global Research News Hour, as much of the tragedy playing out in Ukraine is making for big news, there is relatively little being said about the major disaster of nuclear activity being released both through meltdowns of the factories targeted by Russia in Ukraine and by the final nuclear showdown between Russia and the U.S. that could bring an end to all life on this planet. We will speak to broadcaster of NuclearHotSeat.com, Libby Lahavy, and with the legendary anti-nuclear doctor, Helen Caldicott, about the severe new nuclear situation we are now in, both in Ukraine and in Japan on the 11th anniversary of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. On this week's program, the start of World War III, Part 2, closer than ever to nuclear annihilation. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 11, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Ishinabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. These are full-fledged, battle-hardened Nazi stormtroopers that have engaged in all manner of illegal and sadistic activities, including, quote, the mass killing of prisoners, the concealment of corpses in mass graves, and the systematic use of physical and psychological torture techniques, unquote. And while they are lavishly supported by the United States, they oppose everything that America claims to stand for. They are universally opposed to liberal democracy, parliamentary government, and racial equality. Instead, they advocate social regimentation, autocratic rule, and glorification of the state, race, is very much at the core of Nazi doctrine. That comes from the article, Uncle Sam's Nazi Warriors, by Mike Whitney, posted March 9th, originally published on the UNS Review. The EPA granted an experimental use permit on Monday 
that will allow the company to deploy more mosquitoes throughout four California counties located in the Central Valley, Fresno, Tulare, Stanislaus, and San Bernardino. The permit also allows for a pilot project to be located, Monroe County, Florida. The upcoming release will be the largest release of genetically engineered insects in world history. But not everybody is happy about it. Friends of the Earth, an environmental advocacy organization, said the organization is becoming increasingly alarmed by Oxitec's approach to disease eradication and pest control, saying there is a lack of information regarding how the introduction of altered mosquitoes would affect wildlife and human health. That comes from the article, GMO Mosquitoes Set for Release in California to Quell Disease, by Matthew Renda, posted March 9th, originally published on Courthouse News Service. Less than 24 hours after signing a peace deal, Maidan protesters storm government buildings in Kiev and take control of the country. President Yanukovych flees to Kharkiv. In a vote that violates the Constitution of Ukraine, the Rada removes Yanukovych from office for being, quote, unable to carry out his duties, unquote. The same day, the Washington Post publishes this article. The battle for Kiev is over. Is the battle for Crimea about to begin? That comes from the article Timeline, the Crimean Referendum, posted March 9th, originally published on off Guardian. Since November 2021, two poison centers have received an uptick in reports of accidental exposure to sodium azide, a chemical with the potential to lower your blood pressure or cause seizures. Health Canada reports the test kits are not properly labeled to indicate the contents may contain chemicals that can cause unintended effects if it's accidentally ingested or spilled. Data demonstrated antigen testing is sensitive and specific when administered in the first five to seven days of illness, which is when the viral load is heaviest. Yet CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky advises people who are symptomatic of a viral illness but have a negative antigen test to retest with PCR known to have a high false positive reading. Since 2020, testing has been used to create fear and manipulate behavior, likely resulting in many Americans spending unnecessary time in self-isolation, which resulted in a negative impact on the financial structure and health of communities. That comes from the article, Does Your At-Home COVID-19 Test contained this poison by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted March 9th, originally appearing on the Mercola website. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. be heading into uh, 
an interview with one Libby Halevi. She's the producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, the world's longest running weekly program on nuclear issues, now in its 11th year, downloaded in 124 countries and broadcast on Pacifica. Um, and she authored the book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. And her play, Atomic Bill and the per Payment Due, will be published in the summer of 2022. Libby has, been, has been a TEDx speaker, and she was one mile from the 1979 nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania, which demonstrates how quickly nuclear ignorance can change to a terror from what you didn't know was just outside your door. Uh, Libby joins me now to talk about uh, major nuclear threats around the world today and about her personal journey. And uh, Libby, uh, your, your shot, your, I should say your, your site is nuclearhotseat.com. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Why don't we start with the most recent development, uh, like right off the news, uh, even more recent than your, your latest podcast uh, from AP. Ukrainian authorities say the decommissioned Chernobyl nuclear plant, site of the world's worst nuclear disaster, has been knocked off the power grid. Emergency generators are now supplying backup power. The state communications agency says the outage could put systems for cooling nuclear material at risk. And it also says Ukrainian grid operator Ukrainiho said that according to the National Nuclear Regulator, all Chernobyl facilities are without power and the diesel generators have fuel for 48 hours. Without power, the parameters of nuclear and radiation safety cannot be controlled, it said. Libby, can you elaborate on this new development? We've been covering the situation in Chernobyl actually for six weeks now, since before Russia actually breached the border, because we were among the first to point out that there are 15 working nuclear reactors in the Ukraine, plus Chernobyl, which is the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster, still highly contaminated, very radioactive. One of the first things that Russia tried to do was take control of Chernobyl. They marched troops through there, there were radiation spikes that were more than 200 times the normal background radiation as they went through, which may have come just from the troops kicking up dust and dirt in the, um, in the exclusion zone. And then they invaded on the 24th. After the 25th, we have no further readings on radiation levels at Chernobyl. Russia has totally taken over the site. The problem is that while there is no active nuclear reactor there, there's nothing that's actually you know, firing away so that they're splitting atoms there. There is a tremendous amount of debris, of spent fuel rods, which are not spent at all. They all contain plutonium, plus the debris that came from the attempts to clean up Chernobyl, plus the, the original sarcophagus, which was the containment structure that was put 
over Chernobyl after the accident to try and cut down the radiation releases and which was decaying and was just replaced by a new containment vessel. That only went into effect in the last, I believe, 18 months, sometime within the last two years that became effective. So you have this enormous arched building that is so large it can be seen from space that is containing all of these radioactive remains which have to remain cool. There are cooling systems in there. There are no vents to the outside. So any heat that builds up inside this facility stays there. And heat is bad for this radioactive material because it becomes more and more reactive. There is a possibility it could become critical again. And at that point, we have no idea whether it would explode, whether it would just expand in such a way that it would find ways to leak out the radioactivity. There's no fire suppression system in there because that is dependent on, uh, uh, on the um, electricity as well. And the irony in all of this is that Chernobyl only has two days worth of diesel power to fuel the backup generators. Once that is gone, there is no backup power if they have not reconnected with the power grid. And the irony of it is that that would be on March 11th, which is the 11th anniversary of the Fukushima disaster, the triple meltdown in Japan. And that occurred because it, in this case, it was a tsunami, but a tsunami took out not only the electric grid, but the backup generators. So there was no cooling. And with the active nuclear reactors that there, there was a triple meltdown, which is still active, still a nightmare now as we go into the 11th anniversary. So Chernobyl right now is an international emergency. There is no ability at last report of the ability to go in and fix the connection to the power grid because it's a war zone. They are fighting, they are shooting shells, they are shooting guns, they are shooting mortars. So nobody can get in to see was it sliced in half? Was something destroyed? Nobody knows the exact nature. They just know that Chernobyl at this moment, as best I know as I get on with you, there's no electricity there. And that's an extremely dangerous situation. Wow. So I, I noticed uh, on your most recent broadcast, you'd spoke to several experts, including Arnie Gunderson of, of Fairwinds Energy Education uh, about the lingering dangers hanging over the heads of, of both the Ukrainian and, and the Russians. Uh, I mean, give uh, uh, the, our listeners uh, maybe a bit of a, a brief summary, a snapshot of what was presented on the program uh, in, in connection with uh, not just Chernobyl, but uh, Zaporizhia. And, and, uh, and the other sites in the country. Well, for people who want the full story, I suggest you go to nuclearhotseat.com and click on episode number 558. That one is actually being used as a source for reporters who are now secondhand giving the information that I dug up there. But the situation in, uh, first of all, in Chernobyl is deadly. I mean, that's an exclusion zone around there because it is so radioactive. And without, as I said before, without the ability to have electricity, and that's going to be dependent on reconnecting with the grid because two days of backup diesel is so short-sighted of them, it's stupefied. As for Zaporizhia, that is one of four nuclear power plant facilities located throughout Ukraine. It's only 120 miles from the border with Russia. 
And that was the one that we focused on initially in that program. We have an update on this week's program as well. But that site has now been taken over by the Russians in the course of shelling. They actually uh, blew up and set fire to a training building there. It was not a nuclear facility building, but it puts it shows the level of risk because it didn't miss the reactors by much. Now, the nuclear industry likes to say, oh, our containment vessels are so robust, you could crash a plane into them, you could shell a mortar off of them, and they will withstand it. Well, maybe, but what they're not doing is focusing on the water intake systems, because every nuclear reactor has to be cooled with a constant supply of water going over the fuel rods and the reactor itself so that it doesn't overheat and, and potentially explode. Um, so the water is a constant. The water comes through a pump house system that fuels the cooling system, but the pump houses are not in containment buildings. They are not protected as robustly as the nuclear reactor itself is. So an explosion that takes place in a pump house could kick the cooling system for that reactor or perhaps all of the reactors. There are six of them there and there are six cooling intakes for the water. But in any one of them, a misplaced bomb going off or missile coming in could remove the ability to cool that reactor. And then you're into a Fukushima situation. You maybe wow. have emergency cooling, but it's limited by the amount of diesel that's available. The maximum that there could be, according to Arnie Gunderson, is one to two weeks at maximum fuel to run a backup generator. That's if it is one generator. If it's all six generators, if things go wrong with the cooling intake for all of those, they would need to cool each one of those individually. And there's no knowledge right now how much, how long that would last or how effective that would be. It's like, we do not know the current radiation levels because as of they're taking over these facilities, all radiation monitoring, all data from these sites has been cut off from the outside world. So we don't know what it is, but we do know that military people who do not know nuclear are in charge of nuclear sites that all decisions made by the workers on site, meaning the engineers who are operating it, must be cleared by someone before they can institute it, which delays the response time if something is in an emergency. And these workers have all been on site since before the start of the war. They're usually cycled out, they go home, they see their families, they get sleep, they get good food, whatever. They have been locked in and unable to leave. So they are exhausted with no facilities there for them to be able to catch sleep. So they're sleeping on the floors in whatever corner they can possibly do. This is a nightmare. And this is what nuclear represents everywhere. We're just seeing it played out right now in Ukraine. I can see why you call it the most urgent story on earth right now. Um, could, could you maybe just say a, a little bit about Fukushima, given it's the 11th anniversary now? Uh, it's an annual tradition on your show. What, what was there that's different or new about uh, this year's broadcast of uh, Nuclear Hot Seat? We do voices from Japan. I have an on-the-ground reporter in Japan, Yuji Kaneko, and he interviews people in Japanese, and then we get it translated, and then there are voiceover actors who actually present it. 
This year, what we're focusing on is the intensity of the propaganda in Japan to say, oh, nothing bad happened here. We took care of it. Primarily focusing on a museum in Fukushima Prefecture, which is only two miles from the melted, still highly radioactive remains of a nuclear reactor. That is the uh, Northeast, I don't have the exact name in front of me, but it's the Northeast Japan uh, Tsunami and uh, Nuclear Disaster Museum. And in it, they present a very sanitized version of what happened with all kinds of assurances that things are taken care of. Now, that's a lie because it's not. They will not allow, they have a corner there where people who have had this experience can be there and you can ask questions. But nobody is allowed to say anything about TEFCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, who were the operators of the plant and made many, many mistakes along the way. They can't say anything bad about Japan and about the nuclear industry. So already they're not allowed to speak their truth. The exhibits are all sanitized. They don't show the disruption and the rubble. And as of this morning, I got a uh, set of photographs from Yuji Kaneko that show in the background, you see the museum and in the foreground, you see piles of rubble, radioactive rubble that are just outside the museum, but the museum isn't reporting on that. What they are doing, they are, are printing up materials and handing it out to school children and ramping up the propaganda because the nuclear industry in Japan is desperate to put the remaining reactors back online, even though the public doesn't want it. Uh, politically, it is not wanted. There are many international voices against this. It's an earthquake riddled country. And there's no telling what could happen with another one. At this point, I think there are only eight or nine of the 54 reactors that were operating in Japan before Fukushima that are back online, but people don't want it. And they still haven't figured out what to do with all the rubble. Now they're suggesting that it be used as the underbed for roads and playgrounds. Well, um, we, in our few minutes we have left, I mean, I wanna talk a little bit about your own journey. I mean, your ferocious interest in the dangers of nuclear uh, of the nuclear disaster started in March of 1979, 43 years ago, when you visited a friend living in a house one mile away from the Three Mile Island meltdown. As a major event for you, tell our listeners what went through your mind realizing this event had occurred and how it turned you into a, a major warrior against the atom from that day forward. My response was that I was ground zero at Armageddon. We did not know that that thing was not going to explode. I knew enough from having grown up during the Cold War about radiation, radiation releases. So I didn't know that even if I was walking around, I hadn't absorbed so much radiation that I was already dead in essence. And huge existential terror. I had no ability to get out of the home because I didn't have transportation. My friends weren't there. There was no public transportation. And a loudspeaker went down the middle of the street saying, stay indoors and do not go outside. Stay away from your, stay away from your windows and close them. Um, it was terrifying. It was an ultimate existential, I, I mean, I survived in part by thinking that I was actually dead and just imagining my life and uh, gave me a huge case of post-traumatic stress. This was before we knew the term. And I was living in Los Angeles, just visiting the friend, went back to LA, tried to become an activist, but I was still so raw from the experience that I was triggered by everything that I saw and everything that I experienced. So I just drew a curtain over it, tried to ignore it. I was not active after Three Mile Island. I went and did other things. When 
Chernobyl happened the first time, I ignored it completely. I figured other people are afraid of nuclear now. Good. I know what it's like to be afraid of nuclear. I don't have to pay attention to this. And I did nothing until Fukushima happened. And then enough years had passed, enough healing had passed where I could look at it and go, this is not good. I know exactly how not good this is. And after some online working with people and trying to help them and, and, and sharing information, three months after Fukushima, I started Nuclear Hot Seat in June of 2011. And we've been on every week since then. Mm, in the Fukushima. Sorry. Um... I, I guess we were sort of running a, a little bit low on time, and I, I, I wanted to uh, ask you about your book, uh, the, the Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. It was written back in 2018, a very easy to read with a, a picture of a sign saying Three Mile Island, three miles away, and a younger version of yourself taking, uh, I, I guess, in, in a this 1979 squatting next to it and, and kind of freaking out. A very readable piece for sure. But you also have a, a new website the, for, for no, nuclear hot seat going up in a week's time. Anything you'd like to say about that? Yes, this has been the better part of a year in the planning. It is highly searchable. It has sections with uh, specific people who are experts, including Arnie Gunderson, where you click on a picture of Arnie and what comes up is every time he has been interviewed by Nuclear Hot Seat. There is a new show every week. People can sign up. If you just put in your information for the database, you'll receive one email. I don't bug you. Uh, just send you one email a week with the link and a brief outline of some of the material that's in it. Um, and the new website is meant to be highly searchable. It will also have, initially for the past two years, we'll have transcripts of the program for the first time. So these are all ways for people to be able to have this information and not have to wade through the website and try and find the material. It will be findable by anyone of a number of different search modalities. In addition, we're putting together a means for people to be able to communicate directly with me and set up brief consultations for media to be able to find me for interviews and to just ramp up getting out the information that has been being dug up for the last 10 and a half years. We have to get the information out, which is why the website has been given such an extensive reorganization and reconstruction. We the danger of nuclear. Yes, Putin. Yes, all of that. But ultimately, what the world is focused on right now is that nuclear is there. We have the remains of Chernobyl. We have these 15 nuclear reactors, each one of which is potentially a dirty bomb on the ground if they get breached, if the cooling system goes out, if the radiation starts to be released. And that is a danger that is faced at every nuclear reactor everywhere in the world. Any one of them here in the US, there are more than 400 around the globe. Any one of them can be turned into a weapon if it is somehow exploded, if it is breached, if the cooling system goes out, if the electricity goes out so there is no cooling system, if the diesel runs out of the emergency cooling system. You know, when we had the big hurricane down in New Orleans, I think about a year ago, I think that was Edna. 
one of the first things that happened was the grid, the electricity grid in New Orleans went out. And a result of that was that the grid also went out to the Waterford nuclear reactor, which was about 25 miles from downtown New Orleans. Do you know that the National Guard's first command in bringing relief to New Orleans was to get diesel fuel to the nuclear reactor? That was number one, even before food, even before emergency services, Red Cross, any of that. Get diesel fuel to the nuclear reactor because of the danger that each and every one of these things poses, not only from the spent fuel that we don't know what to do with, that isn't spent at all, it's still deadly. We have no place to put it and we keep creating more every minute of every day, but because of the danger that the facility itself poses, we've got to do away with all of them, shut them down, figure out what we're going to do with the, with the leftover radioactive remains so that they can at least be contained. They're deadly. Plutonium is in them and plutonium is deadly, has a half-life of 25,000 years. It's deadly for a quarter of a million years. We're not going to outlive this thing. So we need to get rid of it now. And hopefully, if there's anything positive to come out of this horrific nightmare situation in Ukraine right now, it's that nuclear must be done away with in all of its levels, cleaned up, safely stored, and then perhaps humanity will have a chance at surviving. Libby, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed hosting you on the show, and, and you, you've channeled the horror of an incident 43 years ago this month in, into a, an articulate, intelligent, reliable, and accessible source of information for all things nuclear. Thank you for your weekly program, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and remember, it's NuclearHotSeat.com. Please come and subscribe. Libby Halevi is producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, the world's longest running weekly program on nuclear issues. After a brief break, my conversation with the one and only Helen Caldicott. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine being the dominant story in the news today, there's little attention being paid to an even more substantial news story, and that is the threat of another nuclear holocaust, possibly even a nuclear war. Joining me to describe what she sees uh, of this prospect, we are delighted to have with us Dr. Helen Caldicott. Helen Caldicott was born in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, She earned a medical degree back in 1961 after completing uh, additional training in nutrition and in the 70s uh, pediatrics. She became a pediatrician and instructed in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School uh, in the USA from 1977 to 1980. But with the threats posed by a growing nuclear arms race and reliance on nuclear power, she quit her medical career and focused her attention on stopping the trajectory trajectory uh, to nuclear annihilation. In 1978, she reinvigorated uh, physicians for social responsibility. And in 1980, she founded Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament uh, in in the United States, which later became Women's Action for New Directions. In the early 1980s, she was the subject of two documentaries, uh, the Oscar-nominated 1981 feature-length film, Eight Minutes to Midnight, a portrayal 
of Dr. Helen Caldicott and the 1982 Oscar-winning National Film Board of Canada short documentary, If You Love This Planet. She was also in 2004, the portrait of the documentary film, Helen's War, Portrait of a Dissident, uh, as viewed through her niece. And she's the author of 13 books, including her most recent Sleepwalking to Armageddon. She's retired from her profession, yet still more determined than ever to guide us and educate us about the ongoing present dangers surrounding us now. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Caldicott. I'm delighted to have you back on the show again. Thank you, Michael. Um, well, let, let's start with Ukraine. Uh, before we talk about the threat of, of nuclear attacks on rival factions, could we focus on the threat of radiation just within Ukraine? Uh, uh, Ross, Russia has invaded the country, it seems, and two nuclear facilities have been seized by Russian forces. The decommissioned Chernobyl in the north, uh, the facility that exploded back in 1986 and, and contained contaminated the region, and the Zaporizhia uh, facility in the south, which is still functioning. And it's also the big, biggest nuclear plant, not only in Ukraine, but also all of Europe. So uh, what, what kinds of dangers stand out for you about how this war could generate or exacerbate the, the dangers of a nuclear catastrophe, adding to the, the catastrophe posed by Chernobyl back uh, nearly 36 years ago? Well, it's very, very serious. Um, no one would ever have thought of soldiers taking over a nuclear power plant, um, but that's what's happened. The Russians have taken over Chernobyl, and although it's obviously not operating, it needs operators to keep it stable, and that's very serious. And then they, uh, they've taken over the Zaporizhia uh, power plant, which contains six six nuclear reactors. Uh, in fact, there are 15 nuclear reactors in the Ukraine. If the Second World War had been fought today with nuclear power plants all over Europe, Europe would be uninhabitable for the rest of time. So nuclear power plants uh, do not go well with war. <laughs> you know, one missile hitting a nuclear power plant could cause a meltdown and contaminate a huge area. In fact, 40% 40, 40 of the European landmass currently is still radioactive from the Chernobyl meltdown. I don't buy European food because I don't know what food has concentrated the isotopes, particularly Turkish food. They got a huge fallout from Chernobyl and the Turks were so angry with the Russians, they picked all their radioactive tea and sent it to Moscow. Um, so we're sitting on the verge of two catastrophes, two nuclear catastrophes. One, <clears throat> a meltdown or a shocking accident at a nuclear power plant. And there are more reactors, as I said, in the Ukraine. Um, or, and or, and or a nuclear war. Now, it's always been my horror to imagine that Russia and America would confront each other because both have <clears throat> thousands of nuclear weapons aimed at each other, a hundred a thousand nuclear weapons dropping on a hundred cities would induce nuclear winter and cause a short ice age and the end of most life on earth. 
the Ice Age would last about 10 years. And that would happen because as cities burned huge clouds of toxic, black, oily, carbonated, radioactive smoke uh, launched into the stratosphere and block out the sun for up to 10 years. And, and you know, that's it. <clears throat> very, very cold and we'd die. But the problem is that these weapons are on hair trigger alert. In America, there are 450 nuclear missile silos in the Midwest, um, armed or, or operated by two young men. Each man has a pistol, one to shoot the other if one shows signs of deviant behavior. They operate with floppy disks and telephones that sometimes don't work. They take drugs, they go to sleep on duty. Um, if they get a message that they're under attack, they have three minutes to decide whether or not to launch. Uh, and it's a short text that they get to telling, tell them to launch. We've been close to nuclear war on numerous occasions. A very few of these occasions are reported to the press or in the press to the public. And we're standing on the edge of catastrophe. Uh, I, I don't like to think about it too much, but in the middle of the night, I sometimes wake up and have this intense fear in the pit of my stomach. Um, and for the Russians to invade the Ukraines like, like they have, and for the Americans to react the way they have, the Americans are so goddamn self, I mean, they think they're God's gift to the world. The Americans have 800 bases in 80 countries, military bases, they metastasize like a cancer all over the world. And Putin, when he was in a more sane mode, mode before he, I think, lost the plot, asked America not to, in, not to include the Ukrainian NATO and to remove the weapons, the missiles that have placed, I think they, since... At the end of the Cold War, when James Baker, Secretary of State, promised Gorbachev that NATO would not enlarge into these newly liberated countries, NATO has enlarged from five to 28 countries. And in those countries, they're all armed with American missiles. Um, and he feels very threatened. And I don't blame him. I mean, imagine if the Warsaw Pact came to Canada, um, your country, and, uh, and put missiles all along the border. Well, America would probably blow up the world like it nearly did in the Cuban Missile Crisis. In fact, I got to know Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defence with Kennedy, quite well. Um, and he, he and I became quite close friends. And he said, Helen, he said, you don't know how close we came during the Cuban Missile Crisis to a nuclear war. Three minutes. Wow. Three minutes. So we're standing on the edge of a nuclear precipice. Most humans don't understand this. The media does not attend to this. It tends to absolute rubbish most of the time to keep people in, enjoying things, but not to teach them what is actually happening. In the 80s, we did have a huge movement um, to freeze nuclear weapons, and it ended up in 1988 at Reykjavik, where Reagan and Gorbachev met. And over a weekend, two mere mortals, men, almost agreed to abolish nuclear weapons. 
My God. And that was the culmination of our work when we educated the doctors and others about the medical effects of nuclear war. 80% of Americans supported what we were doing. We had a million people in Central Park protesting the nuclear arms race. I met with Reagan in the White House for an hour and a quarter, holding his hand, trying to teach him about nuclear war, after which he said nuclear war must never be fought and can never be won. And then he met with Gorbachev, but unfortunately, Edward Teller had got to him, that monster who created the hydrogen bomb. Um, and he, he thought that uh, a missile defence was the, the, the answer, like if Russian missiles can't come in and bounce off. Gorbachev knew it would never work. And he should have said to Reagan, look, you're going to have your missile defence, but let's abolish nuclear weapons. But the opportunity was lost. Yeah. Therefore, we may destroy evolution. Well, evolution. Yeah, I, I think you should repeat the fact that there's been instances uh, not of actual attacks, but of a, a near nuclear war occurring by accident. I, I remember the story of a Russian officer uh, named Stanislav Petrov. Uh, that's uh, the, the Russian who saved the world by simply not reporting what was believed to be five ballistic missiles uh, were headed for the Soviet Union and yeah. the launch was flashed on the screen. I believe this is Feb September of 1983. I mean, if he had followed the protocol and reported it to a, a senior Kremlin official, the, the world would likely be in nuclear war and we would all be extinct by now, you know, uh, but, but he didn't. Yeah, we've come, we've come so close on numerous occasions. A flight of geese nearly set off the mechanism in America to launch nuclear weapons, a rising moon. Uh, America launched a weather satellite um, in Norway, I think, some time ago. They informed the Kremlin that they were going to do it, but the Kremlin lost the data. Uh, and when the Russians saw it, they thought America launched a first strike against Moscow. And luckily, they realized it was you know, not a first strike, but by God, I don't, I really, Michael, in all conscience, I don't know how we're still here. Oh my, yeah, I, I mean. And the worst thing is, I mean, you, you never could imagine Russia and America going to war against each other because they have all these bloody missiles all ready to go and in their submarines and their ships and on land. And one tiny mistake or error, as we've just talked about, could launch the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I don't trust Biden as far as I could kick him. I think he's a weak man. He's employed neocons who helped to destabilize the Ukraine, the Maiden Square massacre. Uh, all of these neocons want to destroy Russia and that's what they're on the way to doing or trying to do. Biden, I don't think it, there's a very rude expression in Australia. I won't use it to describe someone who doesn't really know what he's doing. Yeah. Um, we're in the hands of men and one woman, Victoria Newland, um, who, you know, it's might or right. And that's what's always started wars. Men have always fought and killed. Why? Why kill? I mean, I'm a doctor. I've spent my life trying to save lives and how precious life is, how precious. And these, and then there's the military industrial complex in America. You know, 
half, half, over half the discretionary budget in America, tax dollars, goes to build more weapons. These people are evil. It's not the Department of Defense, it's the Department of Murder, because they murder. Since 9-11, they've murdered over one million people <laughs> and made a lot of profits. And the war now in Ukraine is causing the stock market in military equipment to go through the roof. That says it all. How dare they? How dare they? I don't know if, if you can address this point, and, and forgive me if, if it's a question that you're not you know, capable of answering, but it seems as if there is a difference between the way things work in reality with the operating officers and, and the soldiers on the ground and such, and, and the way things happen at official levels with the, uh, you know, the Biden and, and all these people in the, making grand decisions. Um, I mean, so for example, with the, the Petrov example I mentioned earlier, so I, I was just wondering if in your talks and in your explorations of, of both levels, if, if you have insights into how these differences matter, I mean, does anything spring to mind about where these differences can matter on the grand stage? What differences? Well, in terms of, uh, I mean, on the one hand, you have the, 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 the presidents, uh, you know, making a, a grand decision or something, and then maybe in the lower level, like a mid-level uh, officer or something, they, they, they might hold off or, or something like that. Oh, look, it's, it's, it's huge. It's massive. I mean, mm -hmm. to recount and document all the near misses that we've had of human behavior, um, you see, I, I think the U.S. has pushed Putin to a point where he's lost the plot. Yeah. He's, he's not behaving in a rational manner. Uh, some of my colleagues think that he's got a, a round face, that he might be on steroids, which helps to build body function. He likes that or else he's sick. And um, steroids can produce psychosis. Yeah. So, you know, to arm the world like a ticking time bomb ready to blow up any minute, not ever imagining who will be in charge of these things and how they could develop a brain tumour or psychosis or get sick or do something you know, have a fight with their wife or get the flu or, I mean, human beings are totally fallible. And even when you look at yourself, you're fallible. You do some crazy things sometimes. Each of us do. But to arm and, and to have these things on hair trigger alert with a three-minute decision time is absolutely insane. It's insane. And then they say, oh, it's the Department of Defense and America's free. They're not free. All lies, all lies. What we should be doing is making friends with all the countries in the world. China, you know, look what China's done in a few years from people starving millions in poverty to one of the richest countries in the world. It's brilliant what they've done. They're not an enemy. And why do countries think that they have to dominate each other? This is very testosterone oriented. Um, I'm very sick of testosterone, Michael. <laughs> <laughs>
you know it's like I, I think that i think that uh the uh the television what 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 do you call your uh commonwealth uh broadcasting commission canadian uh, broadcasting commission they they should replay if you love this planet it's only half an hour long uh it looks old because the haircuts are different but it's totally relevant now and it reduces people almost to tears and they suddenly get it in their gut what it would mean to have a nuclear war and therefore i strongly prescribe that that the canadian broadcasting commission replay if you love this planet at a good time and and advertise it broadcast it. Yeah, okay um i'll put in a request for sure i, I wonder can we maybe move back uh because about i mean it's like i say this broadcast is going off on the 11th anniversary of the fukushima daiichi disaster and as i mentioned at the beginning do you have an uptake for us uh, in yes New data. Yes, yeah. I do. Um, Fukushima, uh, they will never, ever decommission those melted down reactors. The radiation levels that workers are exposed to are horrendous. They, can they can't get near the melted fuel. They're trying to remove huge pipes in reactor one where there was a hydrogen explosion that vented radioactive gases at the time of the accident. And those pipes are so radioactive that uh, they're giving off 16 rems per hour and a worker is only allowed to get five rems per year. So they're lethal doses of radiation. The, the workers and, and what and yeah, the Yakuza, which is the mafia in, in uh, Japan, are, re are recruiting or collecting homeless people off the streets of Tokyo, etc and taking them up to run these reactors or, or to work on these reactors where it's so radioactive. I mean, these people are going to die of cancer, obviously. Um, number one, so they'll never ever decommission them and they will be nuclear tombstones, if you like, for the rest of time. They have now a million tonnes of highly radioactive water stored in tanks because they have to continuously pour seawater into the damaged reactors to keep them cool. And then that comes out and it's very radioactive. So they've been storing it in tanks, hundreds and hundreds of them. If you go to the Fukushima website, you'll see these tanks beside each other and they want to empty this into the Pacific Ocean. Now the fishermen are very upset um, because the fish will become very radioactive. What happens is when you put radioactive elements like iodine and strontium and cesium into water, they bioconcentrate by orders of magnitude at each level of the food chain. Algae, crustaceans, little fish, big fish, us. You can't taste, smell, or know that you're eating radioactive food. So you eat some fish with cesium-137 in it, it goes to your muscle or your pancreas or your thyroid, it irradiates just a very small volume of cells for many years with beta radiation, electrons. Um, some regulatory genes in the cell get mutated and the cell is not regulated anymore and starts to reproduce in terms of millions and trillions of cells, and that's a cancer. So the incubation time for developing a cancer 
is any time from five to 50 years. When the cancer arrives, it doesn't denote its origin. So you don't know. The only way we do know is to do epidemiological studies and take irradiated populations like Hiroshima and Nagasaki or Fukushima, except they're not doing that in Japan, they're covering it up, um, and compare that, that population to non-radiated population to see what the elevation of, of abnormalities is. Um, so it's very serious. Uh, do you have any, uh, I mean, we're in that five to, to 13 year range now. I mean, have, have any unusual clusters of cancer propped up and- uh, Good question, Michael. Well, uh, the Japanese government are not looking at the victims at all. All they're studying is thyroid cancer. Now, all cancers and leukemias can be caused or are caused by radiation. Post-Chernobyl, the Russians collected 5,000 medical and scientific papers and published them. And over it seems that over a million people in Europe and Russia and Belarus have died from cancer and the like. Um, but the Japanese are only looking at thyroid cancer, thank you very much. In children who were aged under 18 at the time of the accident, and there's a, there's a very elevated um, number of cancers in these people. Some have metastasized, but they're not looking at leukemia or any other cancers or birth defects or anything. What is happening in Japan is medically criminal, medically criminal. How dare they? And who runs the Japanese government? Really, the nuclear power industry really run the Japanese government. So, and these men, they don't know what they're doing. You know, most politicians are scientifically and medically illiterate. They think nuclear power is very powerful. They have no idea. The doctors are desperate. Some doctors have moved away from the Fukushima area. They just can't stand what they're seeing. And if the doctors even allude to patients that their, their diseases may be related to Fukushima, they get struck off by the government. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, I'm wondering, though, in terms of uh, buying Japanese food, especially Japanese fish, I mean, is it uh, banned? No, it's not. No, Hillary Clinton signed a deal just after the accident that she would import Japanese food and would not in prohibit it. I went to a sushi restaurant in New York a few years ago, and it was lovely, you know, posh and sake and well-dressed people and I said where does your fish come from comes from Japan so you <laughs> don't eat Japanese food the Fukushima prefecture is a, is a very um, rich area in growing food the radioactive rice they dilute it with non-radioactive rice and sell it um, do not you don't uh, don't buy Japanese seaweed don't buy Japanese food because you don't know where it's come, where it's been sourced or what they've done with it, and they're not measuring it for radiation. Okay, we only have a couple of minutes left. I just wanted to ask you maybe one more question is uh, basically, if you had the opportunity to, to talk either to, to President Joe Biden or, or President Vladimir Putin or, or somebody like that, I mean, would what would you do? What would you say to, to try to impress on them the, the, the threat that, that's posed today? Well, I would try and get through their psychic numbing. Uh, 
and I'm a doctor, so I'm used to doing that with patients, of course. Uh, and I would describe the medical effects of one bomb dropping on New York or one bomb dropping on Washington or Moscow to get into their gut to understand the medical implications, the environmental implications uh, of what this means and try and get them to understand that they must actually abolish nuclear weapons. And there is um, a proposal at the United Nations, which has been signed by, oh, I don't know, over 60 nations to abolish nuclear weapons. Um, I try and uh, bypass the military industrial complex and all these stupid men surrounding these presidents uh, to try and get them to understand, like I did with Reagan, what, what really could happen. I'd love to meet with Biden. Um, and Putin, well, I mean, Putin asked uh, President, what was his name? Uh, President, uh, no. Putin asked if, if Russia could join NATO. And uh, and the president said, no, it's you're too big. He's begged the Americans not to let Ukraine join NATO. And why didn't they agree to that? They still could agree to his requests. Um, but, I mean, their, it's their pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before the end of life on earth. That's what's happening. And they're all men. All men. Yeah. Well... I, uh, I think we're going to have to close it now, uh, Helen Caldasio, as you end on that uh, odious note. But uh, I want to thank you for, uh, <laughs> for me, uh, being a woman, for coming on and uh, at this most on this most important issue. Uh, thank you once again for, for joining us on the Global Research News. Yes, and thank you what you do, Michael, and much love to Michelle. For sure. We've been speaking to Australian physician, author, and anti-nuclear advocate, Helen Caldicott. Uh, joining us from her home outside of uh, Sydney, Australia. As of the afternoon of Thursday the 10th, we have no new updates, but stay tuned because as this show first airs on March 11th, another Fukushima in Ukraine could be happening within a few hours. Watch out for it. On next week's program, we will be talking about the Crimea and Donbass angles in part three of our series. Talk to you then, I hope. Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. 
To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.